are not spirit fingers. These are spirit fingers. And these are gold. In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. And welcome to Double Diorama episode 206. Bring it on. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. And as always, bring it on. Welcome to Verbal Diorama, whether you're a brand new listener to this podcast. Welcome back, regular returning listeners as well. Thank you for being here. Thank you for choosing this podcast. Thank you for choosing to come back to listen to this podcast. Because as always, I'm so excited and so happy to have you here for the history and legacy of. Bring it on. This is a movie that's been on the list for such a long time to do. And I'm so excited to be finally covering this movie because this is one of those 2000s teen comedies that's actually really, really good. Anyone who grew up watching 2000s teen comedies will know that it's quite a rarity for a teen comedy in the 2000s actually be a good movie. But before I go into all of that, I just want to say, as always, thank you for the wonderful reception to the previous episodes of this podcast, to Hidden Figures and Hustlers. Both movies obviously prominently featuring characters of colour, and specifically women of colour. And that's for a very good reason, because that neatly leads us into Bring It On. I do actually genuinely try and put thought into the movies that I choose. And while the stories of both Hidden Figures and Hustlers are based on true events, technically so is this one. And I am going to come to that in this episode. But really, I'm sorry to have to tell you all, the reign of Dorothy's is over, unless Torrance is a nickname for Dorothy, because there's been a lot of Dorothy's on this podcast recently. So from Dorothy Shaw to Dorothy Vaughan to Stripper Dorothy, aka Destiny, but there is no more Dorothy's. Dorothy is done. There are more women, though. And additionally, remarkably self-aware 2000s high school comedy, it's not a democracy, it's a cheerocracy. And while many dismiss Bring It On as just a cheerleader movie, it is so much more than that. Show me your spirit fingers. No, those aren't spirit fingers. These are spirit fingers. Here's the trailer for Bring It On. Let's hear it for the five-time national cheerleading champions, the Mighty Toro! You are cheerleaders. Cheerleaders are dancers who have gone. Jan's got spirit. How about you? Dude, you just lost. Ever been to a cheerleading competition? We're the best. We have fun, we work hard, and we win national championships. We have a problem. About what? You ripped off those cheers. 
We've had the best squad around for years, but no one's been able to see what we can do. We're in trouble. But you better believe all that's gonna change this year. I swear, I had no idea. Do you think a white girl came up with those moves? This isn't about cheating. This is about winning. Can we just beat these buffies down so I can go home? We might have to have a rumble. I'll take out famous losers for $200. Shut up, moron! You wanna make it right? Then when you go to nationals, bring it. That way, when we beat you, we'll know it's because we're better. I'll bring it. Don't worry. Come on, let's go get it on. We need a new routine, something amazing and fresh. We've been saying we're the best. Now it's time to put up or shut up. Let's do this. Join the squad. As new captain Torrance Shipman prepares her five-time winning team for the upcoming national cheerleading competition, she discovers from new recruit Missy that their former captain has stolen their routines from a rival team, the East Compton Clovers. Torrance is determined to come up with new routines and prove that the Toros can win without cheating. Meanwhile, Isis, the captain of the Clovers, finds out about the stolen routines and vows to beat the Toros at the national championships by being the better team. The Clovers are facing financial difficulties and winning the competition is their only chance to secure funding for their team. Torrance and her team struggle to come up with new routines and tensions rise as they face the possibility of losing their title. Let's, as always, run through the cast. We have Kirsten Dunst as Torrance Shipman, Eliza Dushku as Missy Pantone, Jesse Bradford as Cliff Pantone, Gabrielle Union as Isis, Claire Kramer as Courtney, Nicole Bilderback as Whitney, Sharnina Jolson as Darcy, Nathan West as Jan, Huntley Ritter as Les, Shamara Fears as Lava, Natina Reed as Janelope, Brandon Williams as Lafred, Ian Roberts as Sparky Palastri, Lindsay Sloan as Big Red, Bianca Kajic as Carver, and Richard Hillman as Aaron. Bring It On was written by Jessica Bendinger and was directed by Peyton Reed. So one of the things that I like to do for this podcast is I like to obviously have a bit of a look into the history of the topic of the movie. And I was actually really surprised to find out that some 100 years ago at the University of Minnesota, women were permitted to participate in cheerleading for the very first time. And previous to this, cheerleading had been male only. And it started with rebellious male students in the late 18th century acting out against their teachers, bringing about collegiate sports. In the 1860s here in Britain, students would cheer and chant in unison when their favourite sport was being played. And in 1869, the first intercollegiate American football game between Princeton University and Rutgers University, a cheer was developed by the student fans, which were obviously all male. The Princeton cheer was documented in 1877, in an issue of the Daily Princetonian and the cheer itself, hurrah, 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 tiger, sst, um, ah, is pretty basic compared to modern cheers, but it still remains in use today as the locomotive. And apologies if I've got that cheer incorrect. Princeton graduate Thomas Peebles moved to Minnesota in 1884 and gave the University of Minnesota the idea for set cheers at games. Three students were named as cheer 
leaders. And in 1898, Johnny Campbell became the first cheerleader to direct a crowd in a newly created cheer. Ra ra ra, ski umar, hoorah, hoorah, varsity varsity varsity, mini sota. The sport being predominantly female didn't start to shift until World War II, when collegiate men were drafted for the war effort. Not only did this mean women taking up previously male-only sports like baseball, such as in a league of their own, my episode on that is episode number 43, and it's one of my favourites, but also women started to take part in sideline activities like cheerleading. Female participation increased in the 1950s, where professional cheerleading also began, the first recorded squad being for the Baltimore Colts. Women were exclusively chosen mostly for their dance ability, but also to adhere to the male gaze because the targeted group for American football games were heterosexual men. The so-called grandfather of modern cheerleading, Lawrence Herkimer, himself a former cheerleader, started cheerleading camps in the late 1940s. He founded the first cheerleader uniform company providing skirts and sweaters. He invented the pom-pom, which he originally named the pom-pon with an N on the end in 1971. He also invented the move the Herky Jump and created the infamous Spirit Stick. Cheerleaders, they are athletes. They are just like the strippers in Hustlers. Cheerleading is also incredibly dangerous. The US has 3 million female high school athletes. Only 3% of these are cheerleaders, but cheerleading accounts for nearly 65% of all catastrophic injuries in girls' high school athletics. So, the cheerleader trope in film and TV seemingly doesn't serve it very well because this is an actual athletic sport. In most movies and TV shows, the cheerleader character is usually the mean, beautiful, popular girl. She's hardly ever the protagonist. She's usually a secondary character shown to explain high school cliques or demographics or usually just as a foil for the lead character. The introduction to this movie is self-aware, tells you all the stereotypes about cheerleaders that this movie is going to attempt to debunk. Not by showing you they're not all mean, dumb, popular girls, because they are, but by showing you the journey that Torrance in particular goes through. Bring It On, the little cheerleader movie that could, started life as Cheer Fever, the first feature script by Jessica Bendinger. She was a writer for Spin magazine. She covered rap and hip-hop music, which would come in handy when making a cheerleader movie. She started working for MTV News after she graduated from Columbia, and she directed Queen Latifah's music video for Fly Girl in 1991, which was nominated for a Billboard magazine award. But she didn't just love hip-hop, she also loved competitive cheerleading competitions, and she wanted to blend the two together and wrote a screenplay called Cheer Fever. She would meet with almost 30 studio executives, many of whom loved the idea, their boss loved the idea, but their boss's boss didn't, and it constantly went back to the drawing board. She pitched to Max Wong and Caitlin Scanlon of Beacon Pictures, preceding her pitch with a videotape for the national cheerleading competitions from that year. Who knew it was a sport and that it was so riveting to watch? Wong and Scanlon both had their opinions on cheerleaders from high school, but both agreed there was no movie out there like it, but that it had a deep societal core talking about cultural appropriation, things that teen movies just didn't go into, or if they did, it'd be a one big joke at the expense of the black characters. Wong and Scanlon pitched cheer fever to their superiors, who turned the idea down based on the fact that they didn't believe anyone would want to see a movie about cheerleading because there were no movies about cheerleading. The common catch-22 situation of movie-making. A month passed and the script was still available and it would be a similarly passed-on script from a couple of years before for a little movie called Scream that was the clincher because Max Wong had suggested Scream 
Anne bought the script first, but her boss at Beacon, Mark Abraham, had passed on it. Scream went on to be one of the biggest hits of the year and essentially reinvented the slasher movie. So Wong threw the Scream argument to Abraham, who asked if Cheer Fever would also make $300 million. But the argument was already there. He passed on Scream. And did he really want to be the guy who also passed on Cheer Fever? So Beacon Pictures bought the pitch in 1996, but it would languish in development hell for years before they caught a break by sending the script to Kristen Z, who loved it. She sent it to her friend, Academy Award-winning director Jonathan Demi. Demi also loved it and called Stacey Snyder, the head of Universal, praising the amazing new cheerleading movie they had, saying it was the freshest thing he'd read in years. 48 hours later, Max Wong and Caitlin Scanlon were in a meeting at Universal and the movie was immediately put into production with only 90 days to find their director. Literally overnight, this movie was greenlit. But if you're going to make a movie, then you do need to have a director. It's kind of important. So enter stage left, Peyton Reed. He was an unknown director. He was working on sketch comedy for Comedy Central at the time. And his agent sent in the script for Cheer Fever. And Peyton Reed didn't really understand why he was being sent this movie. But it was an opportunity, not just for his feature-length directorial debut, but also to debunk the myths around competitive cheerleading, to show its athleticism, and to highlight the hypocrisy towards female sports compared to men's sports. Because cheerleaders were often portrayed as just mean and dumb, whereas most male sports are seen as worthy of scholarships and success. Peyton Reed just understood the assignment straight away, that despite not liking cheerleaders in his high school, he actually cared about these girls. He wanted to play it straight and not ridicule their world. And this is what clinched him the director's job on Cheer Fever. And so, of course, they then set about finding their torrents. And they met with Marley Shelton, who seemed interested until she wasn't. And this was when they realised there was competition out there. There was another cheerleader movie being made called Sugar, Spice and Semi-Automatics. And they'd nabbed Marley Shelton as one of their leads. And I'm going to be coming back to Sugar and Spice, as it would be called, in a little bit, because the story of that is very, very interesting. So they went on the hunt for their lead and they kept coming back to Kirsten Dunst, a former child star who'd been in some huge movies. So she'd been interviewed with The Vampire, Little Women, Jumanji, Drop Dead Gorgeous and The Virgin Suicides. She could do drama, she could do comedy. And despite a long list of performances, she was only 17 years of age. She was working in Prague when she got the script for Cheer Fever. And she had experience of cheerleading in eighth grade. But she turned down the role several times before speaking with Peyton Reed. And he assured her it was going to be a great movie. It was going to have a great message. And most importantly, it was going to be a lot of fun. So once they got Kirsten, they wanted the antithesis to Torrance, the Dorothy to her Lorelei. A little gentleman prefer blondes thing for you there. And one thing you'll notice about this cast in particular is the Buffy the Vampire slayiness of it. So not only are Buffy's mentioned in the script as the Clovers plan to beat those Buffy's down, there are several Buffy links in this movie from Christoph Beck doing the score. He also scored the early seasons of Buffy to the inclusion of Claire Kramer, who played Glory in Buffy season five. One of my favourite villains from Buffy, actually. Claire Kramer would play Courtney in Bring It On. But the main link would be Eliza Dushku, a.k.a. Faith from Buffy. Fan favourite bad girl. Dushku's breakthrough role was that of Dana Tasker, the daughter of Arnold Schwarzenegger and Jamie Lee Curtis's characters in James Cameron's 1994 action spy flick True Lies. She joined the cast of Buffy in 1998 as Faith, the Slayer from the Wrong Side of the Tracks. And the Slayer Buffy could have been 
had she had no family or friends supporting her, and Dushku was the only choice for the role of Missy. The final female character they needed to crack was Isis, the leader of the East Compton Clovers, and in early table reads, they'd used Gabrielle Union to read for the role. Union was, in their minds, the perfect choice for the character, despite being 10 years Dunst's senior, because Gabrielle Union did not look it, and she was actually key on making Isis and the rest of the Clovers more than just black caricatures. In fact, Gabrielle Union had wanted a role in Sugar and Spice, that other cheerleading movie I haven't actually talked about yet. And she auditioned for a role in that movie, but they didn't want any of their lead characters to be black. Whereas Bring It On was a cheerleading movie that not only encouraged diversity in the cast, but actually had something important to say about cultural appropriation. At the table read, the characters' lines were very typical angry black woman, black exploitation characters, that sort of thing. So Gabrielle Union told the producers that she wouldn't be reading lines for a black character written by a white writer. She wanted the character of Isis to feel real. She wanted to truly represent her community. So she helped rewrite the character of Isis to be not such a black stereotype. Rounding out the Clovers were members of girl group Black, Shamari Fears, Natina Reed and Brandy Williams, who had a recording contract. They were just about to put out an album. They could dance and they had great chemistry with Gabrielle Union. So they worked their roles around being in the group and performing alongside NSYNC and TLC. They'd never acted before and needed a bit of coaching from the seasoned professionals about marks, lighting and cameras. But everyone banded together on this movie. Everyone helped out. Everyone wanted this movie to be great. And this movie formed fast, close friendships that are still here to this day. But Black were also a touring band. They still had music commitments. And so when other actors had days off, the ladies of Black kept working, which considering the schedule of this movie, the gruelling boot camps and the long shooting days, meant that these girls worked extra hard during this time period. And the movie was a low-key rom-com too, as standard for 2000s teen movies. The romantic interest had to be quirky, cute and a rocker. Jason Schwartzman and James Franco both auditioned. Franco was also working on Freaks and Geeks at the time. But after auditioning 300 guys, they found Jesse Bradford, who, like Peg Reed, questioned his involvement in a cheerleading movie. But like Kirsten Dunst, he just loved Peyton Reed and just got his energy. The teeth brushing scene, though, so sweet, but also a little bit hot, right? But what about this other movie? The one you've likely never heard of, Sugar and Spice. Starring a group of up-and-coming actors at the time, Marla Sokolov, Marley Shelton, Melissa George, Mina Suvari, Rachel Blanchard and Alexandra Holden, as well as James Marsden, early buzz for Sugar and Spice was actually quite high. It was loosely based on the 1999 robberies committed by four high school girls in Houston, Texas. In Sugar and Spice, the cheerleading squad robs a bank to raise money for their pregnant captain. The squad use their gymnastic skills and treat the robbery like a new routine they have to train for. They make a plan, they watch heist movies and even visit the local women's prison to talk to actual criminals. Before its release in 2001, Sugar and Spice's backstory was already complicated and controversial. First, the film was originally titled Sugar, Spice and Semi-Automatics, but after the Columbine High School Massacre in 1999, they changed the title and they toned down the original script. The original plot was more focused on murdering for money rather than just robbing banks. Producers thought it was too similar to Jawbreaker, another black comedy set in high school, and the script underwent more changes. The film changed so much from the original that screenwriter Lona Williams had her name removed from the film and writing was instead credited 
to the pseudonym Mandy Nelson. While Bring It On featured a diverse cast and an uplifting message about honesty, accountability and working hard, Sugar and Spice was very white and very controversial from the offset. Teens with Guns just after Columbine wasn't a great message and Sugar and Spice, despite a great early 2000s soundtrack with the likes of Republica, Shampoo and the Dandy Warhols, received mixed reviews from critics and was a box office disappointment on its release in January 2001. And January is generally seen as a dumping ground for movie releases anyway. Bring It On had been released the summer before, beating Sugar and Spice to the punch, and so Bring It On was generally seen as the superior movie. I've not seen Sugar and Spice, so I can't comment on the quality, but Bring It On is so great, I kind of feel like I don't have to. So back to Bring It On. Once all of the cast was put together, all of the cheerleaders except Kirsten Dunst went to San Diego for a cheer boot camp for six weeks. This was choreographed by Anne Fletcher and High Hat. Dunst was busy shooting another movie, so she couldn't train with the rest of the cast. She actually didn't come until the day before Bring It On started filming. Luckily, she picked up the routines quickly, but the cheers themselves were incredibly taxing, especially for actors who weren't professional cheerleaders. They had to do seven or eight takes of the same routines over and over again. But the cast immediately hit it off. They all became close, despite Kirsten Dunst legally being under the age of 18 and not being able to join in with a lot of the group hangouts. Actual cheerleaders did join them as background extras, and there was apparently a weekend in Tijuana, but what happens in Tijuana stays in Tijuana. The producers back then didn't know about the trips because the actors weren't allowed to travel into Mexico just in case they couldn't get back. Eliza Dushku did mention an issue in Tijuana after a drinking session, which may have got some of them arrested, but she managed to negotiate with the police and they were allowed to return to the US. Producers only found out about this little jaunt after the fact. Filming took place from July 1999 to September 1999 in various high schools in San Diego County and San Diego State University. The movie's opening cheer, which perfectly sets up the tone, is a dream sequence that originally was going to be cut. Jessica Bendinger fought for it to remain in the movie, stating the audience needed to know the movie was in on the joke and about the performative femininity and internalised misogyny associated with cheerleading. It introduces all the main characters and confronts the audience's preconceived notions about cheerleaders. Shooting it took the cast a full day in an auditorium full of extras. The words to the cheer were written by Bendinger and the choreography was meant to be literal. Torrance's introduction was meant to emulate Esther Williams, the famous Hollywood synchronised swimmer of the 1940s, and the lyrics were supposed to be suggestive. And typically for an early 2000s teen comedy, the comedy got edgy, sometimes a little too edgy. A joke further on in the movie ended up being cut after it suggested one of the male cheerleaders sniffed his finger after holding up Claire Kramer's character Courtney. It was implied sexuality, but the MPAA wanted it cut, so he still holds her up. She still laughs about it, but the finger to the nose was removed. Also, with it being an early 2000s teen comedy, some of the language is very early 2000s teen comedy. But at least, this is a movie that's accepting. The Toros, as a team, are often the typical teenage cheerleader caricatures, but they also accepted differences. There's an openly gay member of the cheerleading squad, for example. The word gay isn't mentioned, probably something to do again with the early 2000s teen comedy, but he mentions he's quote-unquote controversial, and it's just immediately accepted by everyone else in the team. And then there's the cultural appropriation aspect, possibly the thing in this movie that holds up the best out of everything. And it was something that was really important for the team behind this movie to get right. Jessica Bendinger started out writing features on hip-hop artists. 
and realised that in music there are countless examples of black artists being copied by white artists with similar sounding music and dance routines and the white artists getting huge off of the inspiration. Think of something like New Edition and New Kids on the Block. New Kids was created to be the quote-unquote white version of New Edition and New Kids became a phenomenon with zero credit to the black band that inspired their management to create them in the first place. And that story translates perfectly into the Toros seeing the routines from the Clovers. While Torrance isn't responsible for the past theft, she's made responsible now by how she deals with the fallout from what Big Red has done. And she does try to make it right. And in her eyes, it's levelling the playing field and getting her father to sponsor the Clovers so they can make it to nationals. But the Clovers didn't want to be saved by the guilty white girl, nor did they want to be indebted to the Toros. They wanted to take them on and beat them fair and square. Gabrielle Union would find online polls of great cinema villains and find Isis on them. And all Isis wants is accountability. And again, it kind of speaks to the trope of the angry black woman. And this is again why Bring It On endures. The movie lets the main characters lose. And it's important they do lose to gain that humility and to acknowledge that the Clovers are the better team. And this was despite the studio wanting the Toros to win in the end. Because the Toros, they are actually the villains. I mean, it's mostly Big Red, of course, who still, even at the end of the movie, doesn't get that what she did was wrong and she probably never will. But despite coming second, at least the Toros know they did the right thing and that the right team won. It's not about being a gracious winner. It's about being a gracious loser. And so the production team on this movie fought for the Toros to lose. And in doing so, made Bring It On an instant teen classic with an important message not only on cultural appropriation, but also on the rejection of the white saviour trope. An alternate ending with Torrance and Isis together at UC Berkeley on the same cheerleading squad was shot and included on the original DVD, but mostly forgotten by everyone involved. The movie originally opened with Torrance writing to the International Olympic Committee to consider cheerleading as an exhibition sport, and it originally ended with her writing to them to thank them because her wish had come true and she's cheering at Berkeley. And that was thankfully all changed for the iconic opening number and the closing credits lip sync of Hey Nicky, which was filmed just after filming the finale in San Diego and has now become pretty much iconic in its own right as well. Speaking of iconic, let's segue into the obligatory Keanu reference for this episode. So if you don't know what that is, it's where I try and link the movie that I'm featuring with Keanu Reeves for no reason other than he genuinely is the best of men and he deserves to be mentioned in every podcast of all time. And this one was actually pretty easy because Keanu has started his own cheerleader movie, sort of, and it was also in the same year. So he starred in 2000's The Replacements, which is technically about American football, but it does have cheerleaders in it. And that movie is based loosely on the 1987 NFL strike. It is a Keanu movie I have not seen, but I do actually want to see it because I do believe I've mentioned it in a reference before, but the context is different, so I'm going to allow it. Technically, I'm not allowed to mention the same obligatory Keanu reference twice. That's probably going to change in the future as I start to get more and more episodes and start to get less and less references that are unique. But I do believe I have mentioned the replacements before, but not in the capacity of cheerleading. And I think one of the things that I love about, well, really any 2000s movie is soundtracks to 2000s movie because that's the era that I grew up in. And 2000s music was absolute boss. I mean, not to mention the songs on this soundtrack. 
they do have a nostalgic quality to them. So the soundtrack is very 2000s. And not only do we have tracks from the girl group Black, which makes sense because they're in this movie, but we also have iconic bands such as Atomic Kitten, Bewitched, and Daphne and Celeste. Now, I think that those bands were only famous in the UK, so I'm a little bit confused as to why they're featured on an American movie soundtrack, but I'm not going to complain because the song Hey Nikki was by Bewitched. I didn't actually know that, but Bewitched, classic girl group from Ireland. If you've not had the pleasure of listening to music from Bewitched, have a listen. You will thank me for it, I guarantee. There's also songs on the soundtrack by hip-hop groups Jungle Brothers and 95 South, which again makes sense because of the hip-hop angle that they wanted to go down. And as I mentioned, the score was by Christoph Beck. So once this movie was shot and edited, obviously test screenings then started in earnest. And there was a general sense of apprehension from the cast and crew who attended their own screening in LA. Several trailers were produced to appeal to different demographics. So there's a quote-unquote tits and ass trailer to appeal to young men. And they shot additional material of Gabrielle Union and the girls from Black for the trailer to appeal to African-American viewers. They wanted to make it clear this was a movie featuring both a white and a predominantly black cheerleading team. The test screening feedback was good and the studio realised that they could have a sleeper hit on their hands. So they then upped the marketing budget, which paid off in dividends really because when Bring It On opened on the 25th of August 2000, it opened at number one the same week as The Art of War, the Wesley Snipes movie. And it also displaced my bestie, Jennifer Lopez, if you've listened to the last episode on Hustlers, you'll know how much I love J-Lo. Her movie, The Cell, went down to number three that week. The Replacements was also still in the charts at number seven, by the way. Bring It On stayed at number one for its second week, and it didn't really have any major competition, excuse the pun, until its third week when it went to number three against new releases The Watcher and Nurse Betty. Initial tracking reports suggested the movie would open at $6 million, but it would open at $17.4 million on its first weekend and it became a bit of a phenomenon, actually. Girls were showing up in cinemas in cheerleading uniforms, doing cheers in the aisles. On its $11 million budget, it would gross $68.4 million domestically in the US and $22.1 million internationally for a total worldwide gross of $90.5 million. And it has a criminally low Rotten Tomatoes rating of 63%. And to be honest, I figure most of those critics only saw a fluffy cheerleader movie, but I see it as way more than that. Roger Ebert would recant his initial negative impression of the film, later referring to Bring It On as the Citizen Kane of cheerleader movies. And of course, I have to talk about the various sequels to Bring It On. So it was followed by five direct-to-video sequels and one television film sequel. So they are in order. Bring It On Again in 2004. Bring It On All or Nothing in 2006, Bring It On In It to Win It in 2007, Bring It On Fight to the Finish in 2009, Bring It On Worldwide Cheer Smack in 2017, and Bring It On Cheer or Die in 2022. The only sequel to Bring It On to retain any of the original crew was 2004's Bring It On Again. After Bring It On Again, the first film's creators didn't return to make any of the other sequels and none of the films feature the original cast members. I have seen a handful of these Bring It On movies and they just don't retain the original's charm or central message. They're literally just about two cheerleading teams and to be honest, I don't think the sequels understood the assignment at all. 
There aren't any cinematic remakes or any planned that I'm aware of, but a stage musical premiered in January 2011 at the Alliance Theatre in Atlanta with music by Lin-Manuel Miranda and Tom Kitt and lyrics by Miranda and Amanda Green. It was nominated for several awards and it toured between November to December 2011 across the US. It opened on Broadway in July 2012 through to December 2012 and received positive reviews for its dance routines and performances. Academy Award winner Ariana DeBose featured in the musical during its initial runs in Atlanta through to Broadway as Nautica and it was also the first Broadway musical to feature a transgender character. And on the theme of giving credit to original artists, which is kind of the theme of Bring It On, Life imitated art when Jessica Bendinger, the original film screenwriter, filed a lawsuit on the musical in 2011 claiming she had a legal right to the licensing of the theatre production. She stated that if she received proper credit and payment, she would agree to the Bring It On musical's continued production. An out-of-court settlement was reached in November 2011. I think I've made it clear throughout this episode just how much I love this movie and how much this movie endures. Considering it's now 23 years old, it actually still feels quite fresh, which is remarkable. Again, for any movie that came out in the 2000s, and especially a teen comedy from the 2000s. But that's what I think about this movie, but what do other people think? I like to ask on social media, on Patreon and Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. And I'd like to get listeners' feedback for the episode. So we're going to go to the patrons and we're going to start with Brett. And Brett says, Nine-year-old Brett loved this movie. I was a big Kirsten Dunst fan and would watch anything she was in. Great rival dynamic between Dunst and Gabrielle Union. Solid direction from future Ant-Man director Peyton Reed. And it started a new generation of teen movies that are still going to this day. It also gave us Bring It On, All or Nothing, which was just as good as this one. And as always, if a patron has a podcast, I like to give their podcast a bit of a plug. So Brett hosts Dissect That Film and it is a movie retrospective podcast that also talks about TV shows as well. And they dissect the good, the bad. They review movies every week and it is a really fun podcast and well worth your time. I will put information in the show notes for them. A perennial commenter, Andy, has returned from a little bit of a hiatus. I know he's been busy. And Andy says... Hey, I'm back. So I never had any idea how intense the world of cheerleading was until I saw Bring It On. Initially, I dismissed it as another teen comedy. Speaking of which, oh, it's already been brought on. I found myself intrigued by the lengths these characters had to go to become successful in this field due for a rewatch. And as I understand it, the quote is from, I think, some spoof movie. It might be like epic movie or something like that. I'm not entirely sure, but I know that there is a character who is playing a character based on Gabrielle Union's character and says, oh, it's already been brought in or something like that. I've not seen the movie, but I have heard of it. So I do know the reference. But Andy is back. I call him perennial commenter Andy because he tends to comment on every episode, but he has been away for a couple of weeks. And he also has his own podcast. It's called Geek Salad. And it is basically the one-stop shop podcast for all of your geeky, nerdy needs. Eventually, Geek Salad will get round to a movie to 2000 episode. I think it's probably several years away, but I'm hoping that Bring It On is included in their list because it is genuinely that brilliant. Geek Salad basically talk about movies, music, TV shows, games, literally anything and everything that you can think of that's geeky. I will also put some information in the show notes for them. Moving over to Twitter. And we're going to start with at Horror Show Pod, who simply say, Bring It On is a masterpiece. I actually kind of agree with that statement. 
At Needed Road said, Loved it. Whatever happened to everyone else in it except Kirsten Dunst? At And Why Not Pod said, Remember really enjoying it, but it has been a few years since I saw it. Must rectify that. At Kid Creole 3 said, I said burr. It's cold in here. There must be some clovers in the atmosphere. At Leland underscore Steele said, Was absolutely in love with this movie as a young teen. Soon as soon there's some toros in the atmosphere whenever it's cold in here. At Thief CGT said, I love it. It's a lot of fun. To me, it works better than most teen comedies, and I think it's mostly because talent and chemistry of Dunst and Union. At Trivia underscore Lad said, Absolutely love this film. Incredibly witty and ahead of its time. The chemistry between every member of the cast is so good. Like every right-minded person, I think Torrance should have ended up with Missy, but the scene of her and Cliff brushing their teeth is still brilliant. Moving over to Instagram, we have at FriendlySparPod who said, This movie is just so iconic. The kind you can watch over and over again, quote until you're blue in the face and never get tired of it. No comments over on Facebook, but as always, thank you to everyone for your comments on Bring It On. And if you want your comments read out on episodes, then the thoughts post for the next episode go up on social media, usually on a Friday. And I always announce what the next episode is on a Thursday evening. So if you have some thoughts about that movie, then make sure you include them on social media. I am at Verbal Diorama on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and wherever, really. Simply find the post, put your comment on, and I will read it out in the episode, and I will also credit you as well. 2000s teen comedies often don't hold up to a modern lens, or even a 2000s lens, for that matter. There's very few that stand out as cultural icons, the main one always being Clueless, which genuinely is the greatest, even though technically it's not 2000s, it's 90s, but it's still the greatest. Bring It On is a close second, possibly up there with 10 Things I Hate About You, but where Bring It On excels against both is the fact it's such a deft social satire that respects its characters and its message. The dynamics of social and economic classes woven through the tapestry of Bring It On allow it to hold up so well 23 years later, despite the fact that the movie was already far ahead of its time in terms of racial inclusiveness, especially among the main characters. Bring It On gave minorities the chance to see themselves on screen by narratively embracing not only people of colour, but also queer youngsters and kids who might feel othered, shining a light on problems like cultural appropriation and white fragility, but not being blatantly obvious about it. It does it with quotable dialogue, lip-syncing and a healthy dose of nostalgia, along with a sweet central love story that never overpowers the movie. Bring It On and its narrative approach to white guilt and disenfranchisement reappeared in public discourse as the Black Lives Matter movement continues to re-energise and redefine discussions about race in the United States and all across the world. It turns out that the tale of white, affluent Torrance Shipman and the steps she took after learning that her award-winning cheerleading squad had been stealing routines from a black team with significant socioeconomic disadvantages is as relevant today as it has ever been. The erasure of black history, or in fact any person of colour's history, might not be our fault personally, but a white person benefiting from that still has a responsibility for it. I mentioned back in the episode on Hidden Figures about highlighting stories from other races and cultures, and how it remains important to ensure history is not always on the side of the privileged few, because that's simply not history. While bringing on story is fictional, it is based on historic fact of whitewashing, and if a fun, silly, sweet high school comedy about cheerleaders from the year 2000 can bring it, surely we can too. Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on Bring It On. 
And if you have enjoyed this episode, the fact that you're listening to this episode, you are supporting this podcast and I'm so grateful for your support. But if you do want to help and you want to help this podcast grow, you could do something like you could leave a rating or review, ideally five stars if you can, wherever you found this podcast. You could also retweet or like posts on social media. As I said, I am at Verbal Diorama. You can find me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and Letterboxd amongst many other places too. But the easiest way is to tell a friend or family member, especially if they're a fan of Bring It On, especially if they, like us, grew up as millennials watching movies like this. And if you did like this episode on Bring It On, you might also like the following movies or episodes that I've done. And I'm going to start by recommending episode 37, which is on Clueless, because Clueless is the teen comedy. Everything about Clueless is absolute perfection. I adore that movie. I can watch it pretty much constantly. It still holds up today. And it is, as far as teen movies go, it is pretty iconic. I'm also going to recommend episode 43, A League of Their Own, because it is another female sports movie. It's not really linked to Bring It On at all, but I just love the movie and it is genuinely my favourite sports movie ever. Bring It On is probably a close second, actually, in my favourite sports movie. Also, episode 51, Down With Love, why am I recommending Down With Love? Well, Down With Love was Peyton Reed's follow-up to this movie. And Down With Love is an incredibly underrated comedy. I've recommended it a few times, actually, because it just didn't really get the traction it deserved. And it's basically a pastiche. It's based on the no-sex sex comedies of the 1960s. Think of Doris Day, Rock Hudson movies. But it is absolutely wonderful. It's an enchanting movie. And Peyton Reed is a very gifted director and I don't think he's given the credit that he deserves because most people just generally see him as the Ant-Man guy. No, I love the Ant-Man movies, but there is something really special about Bring It On and Down With Love as a combo to demonstrate what Peyton Reed can actually do. And finally, I'm going to recommend episode 122, which is Buffy the Vampire Slayer because Buffy was a cheerleader. It is the original movie from 1992. But it is well worth a watch. There's a lot to love about that movie, especially the fact that with that movie, we got the TV show. And with the TV show, we got some really incredible actors who ended up in this movie. How great is that? As always, give me feedback on my recommendations. Let me know what you think. Next episode. So I'm bad and that's good. I will never be good and that's not bad. There's no one I'd rather be than me. Animation is returning to Verbal Diorama with a movie that missed a spot in animation season. But because a friend requested it, thank you, Scott, I'm going to wreck this podcast. Seriously, I'm going to wreck it. And there's no one who can fix it except maybe fix it Felix Jr. And the next episode is going to be on Disney's wonderfully nostalgic video game movie, Wreck-It Ralph. I adore Wreck-It Ralph. I know I say that about every episode. I always start every next episode announcements with, I adore that movie. But I genuinely do because I grew up on video games. I grew up playing arcade machines. I grew up with consoles in the house. And so Wreck-It Ralph really taps that nostalgia button for me. Like it does like a nostalgia button combo in my brain. And I just loved it immediately. And I love the little cameos in the movie as well. And it's always nice to feature animation. And obviously I do animation season every year. But I have said that I'm going to be covering more animation throughout the year. So that's what I'm going to do. I've obviously mentioned all the ways you can support this podcast for free, but if you do want to support this podcast financially, you can at verbaldiorama.com slash Patreon, and you can join the amazing patrons of Verbal Diorama. 
They are Simon E, Sade, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Vern, Kat, Andy, Mike, Luke, Michael, Scott, Brendan, Ian, Lisa, Sam, Jack, Dave, Chris, Stuart, Sunny, Drew, Nicholas, Zoe, Kev, Pete, Heather, Danny, Ali, Tyler, Stu, Brett, and Philip. I said, Burr, it's cold in here. There must be some patrons in the atmosphere. I have a merch store. You can check that out if you want. It's verbaldiorama.com slash merch. New merch is coming. You can get in touch with me. You can email me, verbaldiorama at gmail.com or you can go to my website, verbaldiorama.com and fill out the contact me form. And you can also find my stuff at filmstories.co.uk. I write for the magazine and I also write articles online as well. And finally... Together, we can make a difference. That's been the sign-off for everything Livestream for the Cure related ever since the event began back in 2017. Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I am the host of the Livestream for the Cure, an annual charity event to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute for immunotherapy research for a world immune to cancer. And over the past six years, we've made that difference together. Amazing listeners, amazing viewers, amazing podcast partners and content creators all coming together and we've raised over $70,000. But this year, we're going to make our biggest difference to date and we're going to raise $25,000 for the Cancer Research Institute. Tune into the event at twitch.tv slash livestream for the cure starting May 18th as we're joined again by podcast partners and content creators from around the world to help the Cancer Research Institute crush cancer. Together, we will make a difference.